probably the most difficult thing in talking about technology, and in particular from a philosophical perspective, is that most people don't believe there's really anything to say about this topic prior to modernity, and that's to say prior to modern science. What I've been trying to bring out with these discussions is that there is very much a tradition regarding how it is that this thing we call technology is to be included or understood in human life. And so I bring that out in, for instance, the book of Genesis, and I also bring that out in Homer. Now, what we're going to see is that that becomes thematic with Thucydides. This understanding of techne or the arts with politics itself. In Thucydides, we get a teaching of the relationship between art, techne, and the life of man in political community from beginning to end. That's what I mean when I say that it becomes thematic in Thucydides. From beginning to end in Thucydides, we have a teaching on the relationship between techne, art, and the life of man in political community. However, one of the primary reasons why this is very often overlooked or not known goes back to the reason for why it is that people don't think there's much to talk about on the subject of technology prior to the advent of modern science. And this concerns how we understand history today. The study of history as we understand it today arises very late in the Enlightenment. It's not until well into the 18th century that the study of history becomes its own field of study. And the reason it's able to become its own field of study is because the infrastructure of science itself gets employed in historical studies. And so it's no overstatement at all to say that the twin pillars of modernity as we know it today are on the one hand mathematics and then on the other hand history. In fact, history eventually overtakes the role of science, or mathematics in particular. And that's how it is that our author, Thucydides, falls out of favor. And he's not unique in this. Xenophon suffers a very similar fate. And let me explain what I mean by that. Because in order for us to truly appreciate the teaching, the depth of the teaching that Thucydides is about to provide for us, we need to understand what it is that occludes or makes it difficult for us to see from our advantage this very teaching in Thucydides. To make a long story short, the claim is that because Thucydides did not have access to the kinds of scientific methods that we have today, and because he did not make the distinctions between various fields of study that we make today, that because of these things, Thucydides was a kind of proto-historian. He tried to do history, but we do it a lot better today. Therefore, Thucydides was not a historian in the sense that we understand the word today. In other words, he was not rigorous enough, and so he's not reliable enough. Now, these claims are extremely problematic because they presume to understand in advance what Thucydides is providing for us. And the case that I'm going to make is that he's providing far more, something far more encompassing than what we today understand as history. Hobbes, who in many ways is the advocate of modernity, finds in Thucydides' Peloponnesian War the most important text for all of us to study. And the primary reason that Hobbes gives for this 
is that Thucydides doesn't provide morals. He doesn't step into the story himself, except on very, very rare occasions. And what Hobbes says is that it's the narration itself from which the reader is able to draw out the teaching. And so it's the narrative that teaches. What Hobbes is saying is that Thucydides provides for us something very similar to what we have, for instance, with a Shakespearean play or a platonic dialogue, which is to say a dramatic narrative wherein we ourselves have to do the heavy lifting to discern what the teaching is. And in so doing, that's how we learn prudence. And so what Hobbes finds so crucial about Thucydides and what I'm suggesting radically distinguishes Thucydides from what historians today would consider Thucydides is that Thucydides teaches about man and politics by narrative. And so narrative tells us more than simply the Peloponnesian War. It tells us about human nature itself, but only by way of narrative. What Hobbes tells us is that Thucydides does not provide precepts. In other words, he doesn't lay out moral principles that we're supposed to follow. What Hobbes says is that having so clearly set before man's eyes the events of good and evil and counsels that the narration itself secretly instructs the reader and more effectually than can be done by precepts or moral principles. In other words, what Hobbes is saying is that Thucydides is the most effective by teaching through narrative, far more effective than philosophy or what we would otherwise think of as philosophical treatises. It's the narrative, not Thucydides, who's instructing the reader. In the Poetics, Aristotle famously distinguishes between history on the one hand and philosophy on the other. And what he says is that the historian stays within the particular and that poetry is more philosophic because it gives us the universals. And so this text we have by Thucydides, what I'm suggesting, is something like poetry. So the question is going to be, how does Thucydides transcend this particular war, the Peloponnesian War, and how is he able to do it without being philosophic? In other words, how is it that the narrative itself, the events themselves, provide the fundamental insight that Thucydides is going to very explicitly claim he finds in the Peloponnesian War? And so to be perfectly clear, Thucydides claims to have found a universal, something that transcends time, in the particular of the Peloponnesian War. He's found a certain understanding within the drama of the events of the Peloponnesian War that transcend the Peloponnesian War itself. In other words, he's found an insight into human nature. And further, the claim is that the events themselves give their own intelligibility. That is, the events speak for themselves. And so all of these things, the question of human nature the universal within a particular, and so the relationship on the one hand between poetry and philosophy, and also the relationship between history and philosophy, and then poetry. All of these things come tumbling out of this discussion. And we see this immediately in the opening paragraph. Now, the landmark edition of Thucydides is the most popular one, and it's not a bad translation, but let me read the opening of the landmark edition translated by Strassler. 
and then we can compare it to the Cambridge edition that I will be working from, which I think is a better translation. Strassler translates the opening line as follows. Thucydides, an Athenian, wrote the history of the war between the Peloponnesians and the Athenians, beginning at the moment that it broke out and believing that it would be a great war and more worthy of relation than any that had preceded it. Now we can compare that to the Cambridge edition that reads as follows. Thucydides of Athens wrote the war of the Peloponnesians and the Athenians, how they waged it against each other. Now, this particular translator stops there and breaks up the longer sentence that's in Thucydides, but we've already seen enough to really understand what I've been trying to explain here. Namely, there is no word history that's used in that sentence. In particular, what Thucydides says is that he, Thucydides, wrote the war of the Peloponnesians and the Athenians. He does not call it a history, and traditionally, the title of the text comes from that opening sentence. And so that's the problem there. Now, that might seem like a minor problem. However, as I said, with the rise of history as a scientific discipline in its own right, that causes enormous problems. And so I think that the Cambridge edition is better throughout. Again, Strassler is a pretty solid translation. However, it's very, very important to get these minor things correct. And I think that the Cambridge does a much better job overall. So returning to the text. Thucydides of Athens wrote the war of the Peloponnesians and the Athenians, how they waged it against each other. He began writing at its very outset, in the expectation that this would be a great war and more worthy of account than any previous one. He based this judgment on the grounds that both sides came into the war at the height of their powers and in a full state of military readiness. And he also saw that the rest of the Greek world had either taken sides right at the start or was now planning to do so. This was certainly the greatest upheaval. Now, the Greek word there is stasis, so motion. This was certainly the greatest ever upheaval among the Greeks, and one which affected a good part of the barbarian world too, even, you could say, most of mankind. In respect of the preceding period and the still remoter past, the length of time that has elapsed made it impossible to ascertain clearly what happened. But from the evidence I find, I can trust in pushing my inquiries back as far as possible. I judge that earlier events were not on the same scale, either as regards their wars or in other respects. All right, so that's the entire first paragraph. Now, whatever translation you're using, because Thucydides is considered to be such a great text, all translations are going to have the paragraphs numbered. So the citation we would use there would be, this is Thucydides 1.1. And very often, the sentences themselves within the paragraphs are also noted. But there's an awful lot that's just been said, so let's take a very close look at everything that has just been said by Thucydides in the opening of this text. You notice immediately that he begins by speaking of himself in the third person, and he ends by speaking of himself in the first person. He begins by speaking of himself as Thucydides of Athens, or Thucydides the Athenian. In other words, he's partisan. In this war between the Peloponnesians and the Athenians, Thucydides is perfectly clear. He is an Athenian. Now, this might seem insignificant at first, but it's going to turn out that one of the primary reasons that Thucydides makes perfectly clear that he is an Athenian 
has everything to do with our theme of technology and the life of man. And we get a glimpse of this in the subsequent sentence where he says, He, Thucydides, based this judgment on the grounds that both sides came into the war at the height of their powers and in a full state of military readiness. He says that he fully anticipated that this was going to be a great war and more worthy of account than any previous one. And then what he says is that this was certainly the greatest ever upheaval or stasis motion among the Greeks. And so what begins as an expectation of it being the greatest war immediately unfolds into something much larger, this thing he calls a motion, a stasis. He says it's the greatest ever motion, stasis, upheaval among the Greeks. And then he goes even further. He says it's the greatest ever upheaval or motion among the Greeks, and one which affected a good part of the barbarian world too, even, you could say, most of mankind. So there we have the pivot from the particular to the universal. Somehow, what was expected to be a war unfolds into something else called a motion, and not just any motion, but the greatest one ever. And then it affects not just the Greeks, but the entirety of man. So there's something about this war, the Peloponnesian War, that in its singularity can be extended entirely to all of mankind. There's something about this motion, the greatest ever among the Greeks, that has something to teach us about all man. Now, when we combine that with the opening sentence, in which we know that this is fundamentally a war between Athens and Sparta, it would seem to be the case that the universality from the particularity of this war, the Peloponnesian War, consists in the way in which humanity is divided into two fundamental poles. There's Greekness, and then there's barbarian. And then Greekness itself would seem to be divided into two poles, Sparta and Athens. That would seem to constitute at least part of whatever the universality is that can come tumbling out of this war for Thucydides. And so that which is most characteristic of Athens and then Sparta would seem to be what is most important in all of this. And so determining precisely what those characteristics are is going to be crucial. I'll simply say our topic, the topic of technology and the life of man, techne and politics, is going to be one of them, one of the most definitive elements. Now, you also see there something that's going to become quite explicit quickly, and that is that there is a critique of Homer on the horizon. There's a critique of not just poets, but the poet looming on the horizon, because the war is considered to be the Trojan War. So Thucydides has an eye on Homer, and Thucydides' critique of Homer is going to become quite explicit soon. Now, it's the way that he ends this paragraph that segues directly into what gets referred to as the archaeology. And what I mean by that is the opening part of the text that is fundamentally concerned with very old history. What Thucydides says is the following. He says, in respect of the preceding period and the still remoter past, the length of time that has elapsed made it impossible to ascertain clearly what happened. So again, a subtle but very distinct critique of all of his predecessors, most especially Homer. 
He said, but from the evidence, I find I can trust in pushing my inquiries back as far as possible. I judge that earlier events were not on the same scale, either as regards their wars or in other respects. Okay, so there we also see how it was, remember, that war unfolds into something much larger, this motion, stasis, this upheaval. So we have wars and other respects. What exactly are these other respects? Presumably, if it's not at war, it's at peace. And so the other respects would constitute what happens at peace. And this would seem to be confirmed by the fact that he had just told us that both Athens and Sparta were at their height with regard to military readiness. In other words, their height at the state of war. But the height at the state of war would also seem to be the height at peace. So what we have tumbling out of this first paragraph is war and peace, Greekness, barbarian, Sparta, and Athens. So these three couplets of things are going to constitute all things. And now he's going to go into this older history that's going to answer so very many questions that we have from this opening paragraph. And it's going to speak directly to our primary theme of techne, or what we come to term technology, and the life of man. But it's also more than just techne and politics and the life of man. It's going to be techne, or what we now think of as technology, and nihilism, precisely because that critique of Homer looms on the horizon. And it's going to become very explicit. And to critique Homer is to critique the gods. So this issue of divine law, or the divine in the life of man, that's going to be on the table as well. So war and peace, Greekness and barbarian, Sparta and Athens, and of course, within all of these is going to be techne or technology and nihilism.